What's up, y'all? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Rethinking Christianity. On today's episode, I have Sister Joan Chittister. And Sister Joan was a joy to get to talk to. And this episode was all on her new book, The Monastic Heart, where she lays out practices that uh, the sisters and the nuns would practice in the monastery. Uh, And she discusses and gives you insight as to how you can bring those practices into your everyday life. And so our discussion is all about that. And it was super insightful, her wisdom, her kindness, uh, and just who she is as a person just kind of was flowing through the interview. and, And it was a great Uh, time to get to talk with her. If you could do me a huge favor by sharing and rating and reviewing the podcast so that people just like you can find Rethinking Christianity, and maybe it can be an help and an aid to them also. With all that being said, here is the interview with Sister Joan Chittister on her new book, The Monastic Heart. Sister Joan Chittister, thank you for coming on Rethinking Christianity. Sister Joan is an author, a lecturer. Uh, she is the executive director of Bennett Vision. Is that correct? That is. Um, a resource uh, and a, a research for contemporary spirituality in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, she's the author of over 50 books. Uh, and today we're going to be discussing a book that she has coming up. I believe it's on September 21st is the release date. Uh, the Monastic Heart, 50 Simple Practices for a Contemplative and Fulfilling Life. Uh, Sister Joan, thank you so much for coming on Rethinking Christianity. Uh, I've got your book right here. I've been, I've enjoyed getting to, to read what I have so far. I'm going to begin to, as we talk through this, people will understand uh, each chapter. You can really use this as a daily, almost in a kind of a devotional in a way, or just a, a, a time to, to reflect. So, um, this book is is really interesting. So again, thank you so much for for coming on. Well, yeah, I, I'm the one who's grateful because this kind of a conversation, we can each go find our own our own kind of people, and we can talk. But until we're talking to one another with great respect for the spiritual history, wisdom, and path that's there, we're never going to get it together, Blake. Never. Yes, yes. I'm so glad to just have you on to hear from your wisdom. Uh, and so something I mentioned to Sister Joan before we kind of began. Uh, so I grew up Protestant. And so some of the stuff that, you know, she talks about in her books, I, I wasn't super familiar with until the last couple months or so. And I think that this stuff is, I think it's very, very helpful for um, anyone that is trying to journey in their spiritual walk, whether that be Christian or Catholic or, or Protestant, whatever that may be. Um, so before we kind of dive into conversation around the book, I'd love for our listeners who may, maybe they're not familiar with you, I'd love for them to hear a little bit about your story um, and how you you know you decided to become a nun and kind of what drew you to that and uh, what what kind of drew you towards that calling. Well, well, Blake, thanks for those. Those are sensible questions, and uh, I'll make them short. But they, you're right; they're life shaping, they're life forming. Well, I think this may surprise you. And on the other hand, it it may comfort you. Uh, I was born of an Irish Catholic mother. Who's going to be surprised at that in Georgia? And uh, and, uh, my my Irish Catholic dad uh, died at the age of about 25. And my mother married again, uh, a, a young Presbyterian man whose mother was avid, avid. Two things happened there. One is I discovered 
that religions were fighting for monopolies on prejudice. The we've got it right. We're the only ones that have it right. And everybody else is not only wrong, they're sinful. They're, they're, out, they're out of uh, the salvation domain. None of us, not one single denomination, has a, um, a, a majority on that one. We all were teaching. Imagine religious people teaching that other religious people were sinful. I have found myself in the last couple of years saying, uh, especially to, to people your age, Anybody who tries to tell you what's wrong with somebody else's religion isn't religious. Flee that. Hmm. Flee that as fast as you can, because that that is not the Jesus who brought them all together, the Samaritans and the Romans and the temple. And the, no, no, that that's that's a, a divisive. That's an anti-Jesus position. And we all lived in it for, for far too long. At any rate. Um, in, in this new marriage, my father's, my stepfather's uh, mother, very, very proud Presbyterian and an avid one. I mean, a holy woman. But she didn't want, not want her son raising a Catholic child. So the, the wedge was there already. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the we and they was set up. Why was it important for me? Because that, that, that marriage is the reason that you and I are having this conversation mm-hmm. and looking into one another's eyes and liking one another. Looking there and saying, that young man has a beautiful soul. And you saying, that old nun, she's not half as mean as I thought they were supposed <laughs> to be. Right? Right. Yeah, That's go. where the money comes from. Why? Because I learned because of that so-called mixed marriage that there was goodness everywhere. I have, a, I have a personal life story, and I'm going to tell it to you. I was in second grade. My parents, uh, both of them were very avid about my education. I'm an only child on top of everything else. And the biggest question in the family every afternoon at four o'clock was, what did you learn in school today, John? So this day, I came racing in. To, my mother was at the dish, at the dishwashing sink, and uh, she said, I slammed in the house, swish. And she said to me, well, what happened to you? You're all excited about something. I wanted to get there before my dad got home because, the, because of that first question. I didn't want him around when I answered the question, what did you learn in school today? So my mother said, did something happen? I said, yes. She said, what happened? I said, sister taught today that Protestants don't go to heaven. My mother turned around. She had the foam all over her hands. She shook her hands like this. She turned around at the sink and she put her arms on. She pulled me close to her and she said, and what do you, I was, I was seven or eight. And what do you think about that, John? That I said, I think sister's wrong. Now, sister was never wrong. I have to tell you, that was, that was the most revolutionary thing I'd ever said in my little life, that sister could possibly be wrong. And she said, uh, and what did, what did you say to sister, John? And I put my head down like this. I was embarrassed. I said, I, I didn't say anything. I was so ashamed. 
And she put her hands around me and she kissed me on the top of the head. And she said, that's all right, honey. You're a very smart little girl. And so you just hold that. And then when you grow up, you can tell sister. I think I've been, I think I've been doing that for the whole rest of my life. Yeah. But I, I learned that goodness. I learned that holiness came in, in multiple shapes and that the goodness was coming out of the same thing, out of the gospels, out of the scriptures, out of the Jesus story. Mm-hmm. And so when I grew up, I, I went to the monastery. I was trained by sisters. I loved them madly. Uh, they were good to one another. They loved us kids. They were funny. They played every baseball game. How could you, how could you miss them, right? And so I saw them as very strong women, and I wanted to be a woman like that. So, so I entered. And at that entering, I found myself with uh, a group of the, the kindest, most open, least critical people I'd ever seen in my life. I was, I was, I was living as a little kid out there just where you grew up, where you had haves, haves, nots, for and against, Southern and Northern, everything life was lived was a divide. It's out of that then that I got the first gift of my life. And that was that um, there were, the Jesus story was the center. Yes. The denomination is the way that it is presented. It's the way it's articulated. It's the way it's lived. And we all need those various insights into the charisms of Jesus that come in every denomination. That is my story. I, um, I, I was trained as a Catholic. I love the liturgy. Uh, um, I've always been so grateful for Protestantism, for, for saving the scriptures for us. And uh, the way we're going, they're going to be saving the Eucharist for us, too, because, I mean, uh, they know how to do it without having to do it every morning when you can't have it every morning. So all of those things are bedrock. What And they, they are the foundations on which we stand to form and fill and search our own spirituality so that all of us at the end of the day are together and not divided. Mm, that's good. Yeah, I love what you, you've said about the Jesus story being at the center. And I find that that is what, for many of my friends that are Christians that are kind of wrestling with doubt or wrestling with um, denominational divide or just how um, Christianity is presented, um, I think the thing that I've found for myself and my friends uh, is drawing back to those gospel stories where Jesus is presenting a way of life, a life to be lived. Uh, and that's such good news. So I, I, you know, I really, I agree with you so much on, on that. Um, so I'd love to, to kind of talk a little bit about uh, The Monastic Heart. This is a book that you've recently written. Um, so what about this book uh, is, is unique? Uh, and what kind of inspired you or drove you uh, to write it? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that too, because this book, believe it or not, does come right out um, of, of COVID, of the, of the COVID mentality of the last two years, for instance. Uh, as I saw this deepening and became more and more aware of myself that as a matter of fact, this was touching every level of life, how you relate to people, who you go out to see, 
uh, how, how you live your own life inside, what you can and can't do, where you can and can't go. And uh, for a long time, that had escaped me. I would hear people say, this is life-changing. We'll never be the same again. Frankly, inside me, I thought to myself, oh, you know, it's a period, but we'll pull out. Well, we'll we will pull out. But you can see, um, you can see in commerce, in in the way restaurants and diners and and McDonald's conduct their business, they're not going to go back to the old. They they will. They're teaching us to live a little differently everywhere. Yeah. So. It was in the middle of that kind of understanding that I began to realize two things. One, we were in the middle of a, of a global calamity. This wasn't just us for a change. This was everybody coming through every tradition and that we were doing it in a society that was already very fragile, very concerned about whether or not the jobs would ever come back. The house would be sold right out for none of them. Their kids could ever go to school again. She could ever work and, and, and display her own talents in life ever again. And that was clattering around in families. Um, the, the fatigue that was setting in, the sharpness with one another, the, 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 the feeling trapped, the feeling that, you know, we, we, all, we always went... Uh, we always went bowling, bowling on Tuesday nights. And now everything's locked. Everything's closed. We can't do anything. The kids can't do anything. Um, uh, the most they can do is, is ride their bikes 10 feet apart, and, and they don't like it. They want to go out at night. They, they want to go fishing together. They, they have other things they want to do. Everything was cracking. It was as if the tectonic plates of the globe were reestablishing everybody's position. And I began to realize that the only way out of this, of course, was endurance. Somehow or other, people had to endure that. And I began to say to myself, well, how? How are they supposed to endure it? Well, what are they supposed to get to help? And I realized that the whole society was now moving from certainty to faith. Whether they wanted it or not, you had to believe and you had to believe differently. The certainty had been my kids will go to this school, they'll graduate and they'll go to college. Not anymore. The certainty was we'll always live in this house, at least until we're, no, not anymore. But the certainty was that big uh, plant over there will always be here and we'll have jobs. No, that certainty's gone. We had to move as a people from certainty to faith. And so I said to myself, where are they supposed to go, Joan? How they how, how they find it out? How are they supposed to sustain it when they've never been through it before? And what internal resources can people develop and rely on to nourish their tenacity? Yeah, we're getting out of it, Blake, but we are not out of it yet. And we know we're not out of it yet. And the way it's going, for God's sake, it could take another six months or a year before we can say, uh, do you have a mask in your pocket? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can we go together in the car? Do um, you mean to tell me the theater's really open? So I said, the answer to that, Joan, has to be the cultivation of the, the spiritual part of us, meaning um, what is wearing me down? Because I have got to remember over my own life and the life of Jesus that whatever wears us down 
is precisely what will build us up. How, what do I mean by that? Well, at the personal level, again, at 16, I got polio. It took four years for me to walk again. Now, when you tell me that uh, the local theater isn't open and isn't going to be open, I can do two things. I can sit down and cry because I'd like to, or I can look over my left shoulder and say, I went through a lot more than this, and I can do it again. That's what you call nourishing the, the foundation for tenacity. Now, where are you going to get it? And that's when I moved into this book. I said, what we need now is to find the wisdom of the past. Now, that would seem strange, doesn't it, in a world that's going um, crack, just, just cracking down the hill, going so fast yeah. to be something else that they have never been. But the wisdom of the past is that those are the insights that have remained for all these years, thousands of years in some cases. So if we look at the wisdom of the past, it gives us a filter to look at our own life. What did Cicero say about a time like this? What was Aristotle talking about? Would, would, would Plato have believed in this kind of, of, uh, of government that we're in? We can't live on our assumptions anymore. We can't assume or expect what we always expected. We, we need things now that last. When the job isn't there and the promotion doesn't come and the government doesn't settle down into some sort of civil uh, recognition of one another, we have to have the, the depth and the stolidity of our souls seen through the wisdom of the past. Great, great people, great men and women who endured all manner of things that we have never thought of. And we have to prioritize our values for now and live them. So I said, where are you going to go for that, John? Well, where would I go if I come from an order that is 1,500 years old? Now, Blake, what our, our, the, local, the local ice cream parlor doesn't last eight years anymore. <laughs> And yeah. this is a religious order that in the year 500, 520, a young man about your age was sent by his family to go to college in Rome. And when he got there, he discovered what a God-awful, dirty, evil, death-destroying uh, institution and city that was. And he said, I can't learn anything here about anything that's worthwhile. And he left. And he went away for three years and he thought about it. How can we deal with this? Look at the mess we're in. You and your friends could get together. You could look at what's going on in this country in, in just one aspect of it. Is it politics? Is, is it social life? What, where is it? He did that. He sat down with people and he said, what do we, what, what, what can we do now in here? And his answer was, well, one thing for sure, we can't compete with Rome and we can't defeat Rome. We don't have the money. We don't have the people, but there is one thing we can do. We can begin to live life differently. 
and they can see us doing it. And then they can say, it is doable. We don't each have to have a minivan, a Porsche, and a Cadillac. We could probably do it on two bikes and a sled if we really needed to. And, and we can share our goods and we can uh, read together, pray together, live together, take care of other people together. And that life, it's the life that has lasted 1,500 years. It's not the monastery. It's not the brick. Mm. It's the lifestyle that has been adopted contrary to the lifestyle that is so common around us. It's chaos. It's yeah. excesses. It's divisions. It's meanness. It's drugs and it's dope and everything that goes with it. And say, when, when, when you ask him, well, what are you doing? Well, what, what's the purpose of this? And his answer was, our purpose is to live the ordinary life extraordinarily well. Hmm. That's, That's what Benedictines do. Yeah. They live the ordinary life extraordinarily well, meaning that every single day has compartments for, for those basic human acts praying, working, being in community together, reflecting, dealing with nature, opening the doors to other people, and giving yourself away mm. as much as you can. Yeah. That's where this book came from. That's a, that's a deep history, but it's real for me. And um, I, I believe that the book is set up to say to people, all right, here's, here's what this meant historically, but here's how you can live it now. Yeah, yeah. And there's a section at the end of each chapter is integrating the practice. And I think that something that you mentioned, um, it, it's helpful because in the midst of chaos, I think there needs to be a place where people can find refreshing perspective uh, in the midst of everything going on. And so I think being able to take these practices into the everyday life um, I think can be really helpful for people um, because like you said, if it's something that has worked for 1500 years, there is more than, more than likely some value to it, uh, yeah, you know, one or two of them. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, so I'd love to hear um, what practices have you found that have just, <coughs> you know, helpful in, in shaping your own uh, spirituality. Maybe there's some in this book, um, or just some that you just have uh, personally that you work through? Well, these are all personal, and yeah. these are all in the book, and these are all in the lifestyle. So it's pretty hard for me to, to choose one after yeah. another, but I can talk to you. Let me talk to you for a few minutes about one of these practices that I think is particularly uh, powerful uh, in, in, a, in a present society. Okay. Now, our societies pretty frenetic, including chaotic, and often disorganized and always overwhelmed. And busy people aren't just busy, they're too busy. And they are so busy that whole parts of life drop out. You hear people say, we haven't had a vacation for seven years. Last time, isn't that right, honey? Last time we had a vacation was to see your mother when she died. Yeah, yeah good. Great vacation. I'm glad we thought of it. Uh, 
the, the, this, this whole attitude um, is go, 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 go. And you get to, it numbs you out. Um, you, 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 if you pinch, it won't hurt, but something's wrong. And you know something is wrong. So there is a practice in, uh, defined in the book. Uh, has a, a Latin word to it because we've always used the Latin word, so I didn't change it. And that word is statio. Mm. Statio. It's 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 built on like we would call it the station. The the uh, bus uh, stops at this station. Now, what is statio? Well. Stazio, I, I define this way. It is being where you're supposed to be before you need to go there. Hmm. Yeah. Try it again. What's Stazio? It's being where you're supposed to be before you need to go there. Now, you needed, uh, you and I needed to meet one another at, uh, well, what time was it? Six o'clock? Uh, well, one o'clock here. So five o'clock, six Bro, o'clock, six yeah. o'clock. A lot, yeah. So, oh, that's right. Exactly, that's yeah. right. I'm an artist. So, uh, at, at unfortunately, in in my society, uh, you'll you know that somebody's due at six o'clock or one o'clock because you hear the front door slam, they race down the hall, the coat is coming off, the book bag is being thrown in the corner, uh, the lights turned on and swish, they die in the chair. Um, I was a young, young novice. Uh, I had only been in the monastery a couple weeks and they had us for a conference uh, tell us what, what life was about there and how it was lived. And the novice mister said something like this. She said, uh, now sisters, uh, Vespers is at five o'clock. You must all be in your pews at five to five. Pardon me. You want to say that again? <laughs> yes, Sister Joan. Uh, uh, Vespers is at five o'clock and you must be in your pew at five minutes to five. I said, wait a minute. I got to get something clear here. I'm a little confused. Is prayer at five or five to five? She said, prayer is at five, which is why you have to be there at five to five. That's Stazio. What, what are they talking about? They're talking about being consciously committed to not being partially distracted. Mm -hmm. Most of us stop A, it flows over into B. We are still thinking about what A was about when B has already started. Stazio says, no, you will not. You will not. You you, well, I don't know what you were doing in A. You were coaching a, a boys' little league team. And you were all excited when you got here to talk to me. And, and, but if you had been in Stazio, you would have been in that chair at five to six, quietly, just kind of letting the little kids get home for supper. You aren't thinking about what you're going to do for Billy tomorrow. You're just sitting. Hmm. You're just allowing your soul to breathe. You're allowing your head to empty. You're allowing yourself to get ready for a serious response to the next thing. For us, Stazio is always before prayer. Hmm. We, when the bell rings for prayer, we go 
five minutes ahead of prayer to sit in a pew and begin just to come down, to quiet, to think about what we're going to do next, and to get ready to be in the presence of Jesus before the prayer starts. It's not just a matter of picking up the paper and starting to recite. It's being ready to be where I'm meant to be at that time. Now, that separation of ourselves from what used to be to what is, believe it or not, is life-changing. Mm. You quit rushing, pushing, yelling, shouting back, dragging stuff in with you everywhere you go, coffee in one hand, the, the notebook is the next hand, uh, the, the pen is in the mouth, and you're saying, I, I really wanted to be here on time. <laughs> it's a whole other way of seeing life. It's a whole other way of going through a day. And you don't feel so pushed and, and flogged and chased and cut. It just You just say to the world, back off. Just back off. And if you can get that rhythm in your body, it will affect two things, your mind and your soul. Mm, that's good. And, and do you feel like the, if, if we take that practice seriously, that it begins to affect how we respond to, to the next thing, you know, to, to the everything. world around us? Absolutely yeah. it does. There isn't any question because five minutes is a long time. Try it. Yeah. Try it. It's a long time. When, 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 when you and I end this conversation, my best suggestion to you, don't move. <laughs> Or go, go out to the room behind you, sit in a nice chair, sit back. You're not going to sleep, but this is not slovenly. You're just allowing all of this heap of information and words. Yeah. Kind of work through the arteries in your heart. And maybe you'll remember one or two of them and you'll say to yourself, that was nice. I want to remember that. And then when somebody says, Blake, Supper's ready. <laughs> so I'm coming. I'll be right there. Yeah, that's cool. I really, I, I think that's really neat. And I actually, I read that chapter this morning. Uh, so I was familiar, I believe it's chapter two. Um, that's right. So, so uh, that stuff is, I, I, you know, I think that what's really cool about this stuff that we're talking about is that it is, you know, it's transcendent through all time periods, it seems. And it seems as though it is needed now more than almost ever because of how fast everything, everything's so fast. We've got to be the next thing, the next job, the next meeting, the next. And so people aren't able to have time to reflect and think through um, the perspectives of, of how they view the world, how they respond to the world. And another thing I'd love to kind of hear some of your thoughts on, um, and this kind of, I think, goes somewhat hand in hand with that, um, is the idea of, of silence and solitude. And you mentioned solitude in the book. And I think, I think about Jesus when he would, he would leave. He would, he would remove himself from the crowd and he would have solitude. How important is, is solitude in the spiritual life? 
totally, absolutely, deeply important. You know, monasticism is not peculiar to Christianity. Every great major tradition has a monastic uh, theme or, or component. So you have Buddhist monks and Hindu monks and um, uh, Lao Tzu monks, Confucian monks. Why? Because these were people who concentrated on the big ideas of life and tried to get it figured out, how to, how to get soul and body uh, together, how to get mind and heart running along the same path instead of just always running. Now, my definition for solitude is solitude is a vacation for the soul. Yes, I have that in my notes. Solitude is a spiritual vacation for the soul. That's exactly what it is. Why do I say that? Because solitude is not silence. Silence is a very different element. And silence is, can be practiced all day long in various ways and in various places and quite and very quietly and calmly. And you can be in both, both rested and enriched from it. But solitude is a very, very different thing. Solitude requires both time and space. Silence does not demand time and space. You can be silent on a street corner in New York City when everybody else in the crowd is screaming at you and, and you're just letting it wash over you. Yes. Solitude is, is moving in depth into yourself. Why? Because uh, solitude is the only place you can go to concentrate or to answer the unanswerables. Solitude can take a long time. Think of, uh, think of when you were deciding where you were going to go to school or that you were going to get into some radio work, some podcast work like this. If you did it with, with a real respect for solitude, you knew, at least intuitively, that you didn't have the answer, but that the answer was within you. You knew that. You knew that. And when you decided that I, you know, I like words, I like books, I like conversation, I like debate, I like politics, I like thinking, I like listening to people who are thinking, where can I go to do that? Well, you may someday find out that your radio work is the closest thing this culture has to um, respect for philosophy and philosophers. You may find that you yourself are named as one of the philosophers of our time. Why? Because you open questions that are real, but not cheap. <laughs> they, they take a lot of thought and reflection to get to. Now, the monastic says that you, this is a time, solitude is the time we take to discover our own ideas and the way we ourselves are dealing with them. Mm. Mm. that's why you go there yeah did well well blake did you get that that painting done when you were up at the cottage and you say oh man if i don't get this painting done before she, she'll never give me the key to the cottage again but the answer is no i didn't i would well what were you doing thinking i was thinking and I was praying and I was listening to, to some good Christian music and, and I was writing in my journal 
and I was giving a, 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 taking a lot of, of uh, points uh, that I'm concerned about. I was living my soul to maturity. That's what I was doing. Hmm. Because solitude enables us to look beyond the daily density of life. And we begin to see things we, we never noticed before. And we, we, we take the distance and the concentration to find the insights. This is the Jesus who scripture tells us went apart for a while. Hmm. Yes. I, I tell you, I'm, there's, there, uh, one of the scriptures is, is enough to drive me to tears with that, that, that line that says, um, and, and Jesus decided uh, to go across and rest for a while. So they got a boat to take him there. And by the time he got there, the crowds had already gathered. Mm. I said, this one I understand. Yeah, yeah. This one makes sense in our society. It's, it's what happens all the time. But if you go apart for a while, Blake, you will find wh out what it is that is driving you. you got, 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 I've got a good life. I like this podcast. Uh, I've enjoyed a lot of the, of the speakers. I, the, the questions just fascinate me. Uh, well, we, we have some that I hate to see them end because we're just getting started and it's really terrific. But I discovered something about myself. Mm. It isn't just the words. It's because this suits me. I like doing it and I'm learning a lot, but I think I'm going to have to read an awful lot to stay good at it. You yes. do, don't you, Blake? Oh, you yeah. to, I mean, I'm impressed. I, I, I'm, I said to myself, this guy's for real. He can do it. When you say, I didn't read it all, of course you didn't. It's not meant to be read. I mean, that book isn't written to be read from page one to page 200. It's meant for you to read the segments that make sense or are questions for you right now. That's what it's about. And so when, when you came out with, but I did read some of it and I saw some things I said to myself, he, he's on the road. He's going to be fine. He's I find That's encouraging. I, re I really appreciate your words there. Um, I think that, you know, the stuff about solitude is so vital um, I found it helpful in my own life when I just need to just get kind of get away um, and finding places to do that is, is really helpful. Um, you know, some of the listeners that I have on the, the podcast are people that um, wrestle with doubt and they wrestle with skepticism. Um, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on um, can the monastic practices that you kind of integrate into the daily life for the 21st century, so to speak, can those things be helpful for the people that are dealing with these, these questions and these curiosities and these wonders? Oh, like nothing else. Uh, we'll deal with one for a few minutes. It's the, one of the more difficult um, things to explain and one of the easiest to understand. There's a word in the book called uh, metanoia. It's a Latin and sometimes a Greek term. Uh, and what it means is profound transformation, metanoia, something new, talking about something new. Now, what is the something new we're talking about? You, you are becoming new. I'll give you an example. Um, 
in the first place, the society has often called this, began to call it about in the 60s, I think, uh, an identity crisis. He's having an identity crisis. You know, he comes home, uh, he's um, um, a professor in a research lab and he comes home someday and he says, I, I can't go back there anymore. What are you talking about? You've been there seven years, you've, you've been promoted. They, they've increased you, you, you've got a good, I'm, I'm done with it. I cannot do it anymore. It just doesn't, have, why not? It doesn't have any meaning for me. I just go in and go through the process. I, 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 I take the recipe and then I come home, I don't know what I've done. I pour it into somebody else's beaker and I don't know if it's killing people or raising them from the dead. I have no idea what's going on here. Now, don't worry about it, Blake. You're just having an identity crisis. <laughs> and they made it sound so weird. Now, get a grip, boy. We can't have this. Um, then they changed it from identity crisis to midlife crisis. They got a little closer to what's really going on because it's most common, Blake, to meet yourself going in two directions in your late 30s, early 40s, and sometimes younger than that, even uh, when, you, when you get to that point in your life when you're free to do something, but you're not free to do it. Something, something's grabbing the ankles and holding you down. So what, what, what happens here then? Well, uh, I, I'll give you an example. I had a friend who, um, his father was uh, a minister and a very, very effective guy. I mean, everybody in the region thought this minister came right after Jesus. And the kid, uh, he was a PK and a preacher's, preacher's kid, and he was there too long. And I think he just got to the point where he couldn't take one more sermon, one more blessing, one more hour in church. So he got himself a cheap Harley and he took off. He was 19 or 20 by that time maybe even 21, I'm not sure, but he took off across the, the, um, the States on this motorcycle. And he was going from bar to bar, cheap motel to cheap motel, uh, woman to woman, uh, gam uh, casinos to casinos, back and forth or all, all around the States. And he was gone all, all, over a year. And one morning he woke up in one of those cheap motels, looked at the, at the ceiling and said, what in God's name am I doing here? And he got on his bike and he rode all the way back, got to his father and mother's house and the church. And he walked up and he said, dad, I, I don't know uh, if, if I'm allowed to be here, but I just wanted you to know that I knew I, that the best thing that's ever happened to me is home. Come in, son, don't worry. Uh, we, we, we knew you'd be home soon. He settled down a couple of years later, not without his father's pushing at all. He went to the seminary. He uh, graduated, uh, got ordained, uh, discovered that he really didn't want a small parish, that that just wasn't satisfying him just to preach every Sunday or get to know the parishioners. And so he decided, he began to call people together to discuss these kinds of things and then to build programs so that they, like a podcast, that they could send out to every small church that every um, 
every minister in a small church doesn't have time to do all of that. <laughs> but now they had a good podcast. So let's play it together and talk about it. And he became one of the largest suppliers of uh, ministerial materials in the South. Wow. So that, that, but, but what happened to him was metanoia. He woke up one morning and he said that he knew he had come to the edge of something. He knew that this thing was over. What in God's name am I doing here? And he goes back to the last place he's been, which is his parents' home. And he said, you may not want me. I just wanted you to know that this home is the best thing that ever happened to me. And, and the launch was made. And the man has stayed true to that all his life. So when, when, you, when you come to the edge of something, when you're risking your marriage or your own psychological well-being, that's what we call a moment of truth. There's nothing wrong with that moment. That's the moment that changes life. Now, we can lie about it. We can say, no, nothing's bothering me at all. No, I'm doing fine. Yeah, I love this. No, it's enough. Or we can be, become very sour. We don't like anything. Everything's got to go. Or we can just ruminate about this great secret that's inside us because it's there. There's a secret there. But I'm afraid to tell anybody. But until I confess it, I can't possibly begin again. So Metanoia says, put down the masks, stop pretending, don't up any more debts, don't take another marriage, don't, don't think you have to have one of the costumes of life, uh, butcher, baker, candlestick maker. <laughs> you don't want to do that. You, you want to you wanna illustrate children's books. And mommy and daddy say, oh, for God's sake, you're not going to drive pink pigs for the rest of your life. You can't make a living there. And the people outside are saying, look, we have to get that book from you because our kids love the pink pigs. And we <laughs> talk about it all night. That's metanoia. There's a psychologist by the name of Kazmir Dabrowski, and he has coined a term for this called positive disintegration. Now, when you go to the monastery, you are promising to commit yourself to metanoia, to this profound transformation of your life that is different than what's being lived in the block next to the monastery or outside on the road. And out of that, the old self disappears, your new self emerges, you've had a conversion of life, a fundamental change, and you can start dismantling yourselves and putting your, your wings on because you're going someplace else. Mm, now, yeah. that is a monastic practice to appreciate the need, the regular need for some sort of profound transformation. Mm. Not just, a, not, don't just come in and go to prayer and buy the prayer wheels. You know, went to church twice on Sunday uh, and prayed all morning on Monday. No, no. 
this has to be lived prayer and prayer that lives us through it. Those are all monastic attitudes toward life. You know, they're terribly important. They, um, they, they are not the flight from life. They're a flight to life, mm. to a life that's made of stuff that, that's heart deep, not, not pocket deep. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And I think a common theme, it seems, is this is continually is uh, the idea of being present, uh, being present to be able to have those moments. If, if, if you're so busy, you're so constant, so, so always going, there's never the opportunity to work through whatever it is that you're wrestling with. Uh, and so I, I think that, again, you know, we mentioned how this is a 15 year old, 1500 year old rule of life. And it's something that is uh, super helpful. Um, I'd love to hear a few, we have a couple more questions, but I'd love to hear, um, you mentioned a, a moment ago about this uh, the idea of confession. Um, how important um, is the idea of a community uh, and spiritual companionship? Because I, 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 from what I've heard from uh, different nuns I've, I've listened to and things like that, they do mention how that living in community is so vital to the monastery life. Well, there isn't any doubt about that. And that, you know, we all have um, the absolutely best intentions um, on Monday morning. Yeah. <laughs> you know that? I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to eat between meals. Never again. It's over. And by Tuesday morning, uh, we've had two pieces of chocolate cake and a stuffed chicken. Um, there's, it doesn't work unless you have the spiritual friendship, the, the communal support to do it. That's why, you know, and, and when you're talking about confession, they've got a whole job market out there now on confession, but they call it psychology. <laughs> There, there was a time when what was bothering you went into a, a, a confessional box. I'm not saying that was ideal. I, I really do not believe it was. I think it often confused uh, sin with irritation. It, it sent too many people out of confession where they had confused the moral, the immoral, and the amoral. But they had to confess something, so they made it up and went in, said something that had no meaning whatsoever to their spiritual life. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about deep-seated willingness to find a, a friend, a, a, a holy friend, a spiritual friend, um, a, 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 very, a very wise wisdom figure that you can sit down and say, uh, you, know, uh, you know who's really good at, at understanding this? And that's AA. They understand how to take a life and squeeze out the drippings of the old poison and then rebuild it into a whole new, a whole new way to see the self as well as the world around us. So does, does something like, uh, like that um, integrate into our lives? Can, is it easily integrated? You bet it is if you find the right group. Now, now, here's the tricky psychological part of that. You've got to find yourself friends 
that are a little bit holier than you are. <laughs> to pull you up by the hair on the back of your neck. Yeah. Or that you can also see their strength. That's really important that a friend be wiser, older, tougher than you are. Yeah. And that's that's a that's a, a um, that's a partnership to to maintain, to find and maintain. That, that's that's very important. At the same time, community is where you may not know yourself, but everybody else knows you. Hmm. And so perseverance, stability becomes part of the air you breathe. If you say, I will come to this monastery and I will work on this for the rest of my life. And somebody comes by and says, hey, Blake, I thought you weren't ever going to eat between <laughs> meals again. You say, oh, man, I've been caught. Yeah, I, I, I'm making a mess of it. So community supports us while, while we support one another. And you join a community in order to do what you cannot possibly do alone. So that communal spirituality, that spiritual friendship gives you an opening. You know, you can go through life with friends your whole life and never say a meaningful word to them or even have them say, I understand. That's not a friend, honey. That's an acquaintance or a buddy. Yeah. Boys do a lot of that. Yeah. Guys are yeah. really good at that. Yeah. Yeah. And they can, they can just swap it out here's my best friend yeah do you know his middle name Nah, we don't talk about stuff like that <laughs> there has to be there has to be something in life yeah that that you allow people to to carry you through so yes it's uh, it's a uh, it's the basic way of the monastic life of the benedictine monastic life we do live together uh, and we do it all our lives but it, it is also uh, a, a spiritual task that we bring to one another so yes. that there is somebody there to hear you out when you need it. Yeah. And, and something I would encourage listeners to, if you have a group like that, this is a great resource to do together. I think that um, the things in these, in these, this book is, is very helpful because it is challenging. And uh, like you just mentioned, there is that need for that, that accountability in a way. Um, and so, you know, this book that uh, the monastic heart, I would encourage you if you have a group that you're looking for a book to work through and, and, and go through together, this is a great one. Uh, so I'd love to kind of just close out uh, today with, with this question right here. Uh, what is what is your hope uh, for readers as they work through the practices in this book? Well, in the first place, you just stole part of the answer, but oh. I'm going to give you forever. <laughs> no, no. You really need to work this book through with others, yeah. small groups, your friend, whatever. Why? Not because it's this, but 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 it but under one cover are almost all of the dimensions of spiritual practice that you're going to find, and some place in there is who you are and who you aren't, and both of those things are going to feed you. So uh, even if you uh, just Read it with another friend, one other person. Read it out loud, uh, one paragraph a day, and talk about it. You'll get down into the center of your soul faster than you ever thought that banana peel would go. And you will find yourself 
learning about you, learning about the other person and supporting them all the way through. It's a good thank you for asking because to be quite frank, that's why, remember I told you when I opened, I was looking for how to help people develop their own internal resources. And you just defined it right down the line. Great. I'm so I'm so thankful that uh, you've come on today. Uh, this book is already speaking to me as I went through. I went through the first two chapters this morning, um, and I found it really, really encouraging and helpful. Um, so, Sister Joan, thank you so much for for coming on Rethinking Christianity. Your wisdom uh, is super appreciated, and I know that our listeners will will find it really valuable. Um, so, get get the book if you're a listener. Go um, check out the Monastic Heart. You can get it on Amazon. I'm sure it'll be Barnes and Nobles. All the different anywhere you get books, I'm sure it'll be available. Um, Sister Joan, is there any other place you'd like to point people to for any any resources or anything uh, of that nature? We'll start there and you'll find your resources. Okay. Just start in a single place. This is that that monastic thing again. We seek for the, the one thing that is important. And the one thing that is important is that we begin to, to look at what we can give ourselves that will help us blossom. And, and it means that a contemplative and a fulfilling life. We're lucky to have you, Blake. You stay with us. You're good, pal. I appreciate that so much. Thank you so much. Hey, y'all. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Rethinking Christianity. I hope that you enjoyed this interview with Sister Joan. Uh, Like I mentioned in the intro, she was a joy to get to talk to uh, and someone that just offered a lot of wisdom and insight on some things I honestly wasn't that familiar with till I was introduced to her book and something that I'll definitely continue to explore in my own walk and my following of Jesus and my just my own spiritual practices. So again, I hope that this interview was really helpful for you. Again, if you could do me a huge favor by sharing the podcast, reviewing, rating it, all those things help people like you find Rethinking Christianity. Uh, Not only that, you can follow us on Instagram. If you just look for Rethinking Christianity podcast on there, uh, we post some different content like videos and quotes and, and things like that. And so again, thanks for tuning in. And with all that being said, I am Blake. And until next time, this is Rethinking Christianity.